do you want to intro or you want me to intro? Uh, we'll switch off every week, but I'll intro this week. Okay, great. Gotta get your shit in. All right. Well, well, I guess, I guess this is part of it, right? Because we're figuring this out as we yeah, go. Yeah, this is, this, this is the intro to the podcast. So what this is and what we're doing here is called uh, Fourth Time's a Charm. Clive stirs, pushing himself to his feet, getting a look at the strange clouds and low-hanging moon above him. What is this? Hello? A door somewhere up the street slams, startling him. Clive anxiously starts walking up Elm Street, noticing doors closing and locking, window blinds being drawn. Clive nervously raises his hood. A strange, smirking voice speaks from somewhere. Think you're in the wrong neighborhood, boy! <laughs> it uses the Euro. It has a guy named Carlito. Is it Malta? Fuck. I dislike listening to it, but it's... I enjoy listening to it. Like, everything she's talking about, her delivery, makes me so sad and uncomfortable... But all the music is so good behind it that it it's a different kind of dissonance than I was describing at one of the earlier albums. It's it's painful. <laughs> it's a painful listen. And that's why I love it so much. Because it, it's also and to, to Matt's point too, where it's a testament to her strength as well, to not only, you know, be able to move on from her trauma, but to be able to make art out of it that's incredible and i just nothing but respect to her and this album this album is amazing and it will 100 percent be in my top 10 by the end of the year well um so how much do you hate women then so how many years are you setting back feminism so so I didn't necessarily know that there was context for this album. Uh, I didn't like her voice very much. <laughs> uh, that that sound to me just didn't commit enough. Like I thought it could have gone a little bit more, but it just stayed on that edge. Um, there's another term I wanted to use until you guys told me what the lyrical content was. I'm like, that's not appropriate. So were you going to say woke Kyle? No, 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 no. Kyle was going to say woke or feminist. No, no Kyle notoriously those. hates the music of the feminist. What was it going to be Kyle? No, I can edit it out. What was it going to be? I like shark tooth. Kyle, what was the word going to be? Edging. <laughs> leaving it in leaving it in and we have a special guest star mr monty here today hello Hello. welcome to episode 58 58 58 of fourth times the charm how are you pretty good you know what 58 uh, 8 is a very lucky number is it is it really in in what regard (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. That must explain today. This is actually episode 59. Sorry. <laughs> oh, well, nine is actually a very, very good number, too. Because yes. wow. nine represents uh, length, like as in forever. So Ooh. hopefully oh this one will will help continue you guys your podcast this is forever. Epi- 
Yeah, yes, this podcast <laughs> solidifies us in history. I don't. Have you ever had a chili cheese burrito? You've you've had a chili cheese burrito with me, right? Me? Yeah. No, I've never sullied my body with such a thing. What the fuck? What the hell does that mean? I'm a beefy five layer purist, and occasionally a crunchwrap. You're a beefy five layer bitch. Yeah. (laughs) And so, if 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 I learned anything on the plague, it was to to commit to that, Mm -hmm. because that. That having done both, having done a studio film mm-hmm. that doesn't represent who I am, and having done independent films that do, um, it's it's night and day. There's no no comparison. So embrace embrace what's inside you, and don't worry about the people who aren't going to like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pay attention I, to the ones who will. I I can't think of a better anthem for this podcast as a whole i was about to say the same thing yeah (laughs) these you're the you're the you exemplify the kind of artists that we love to highlight it's it was truly a pleasure talking to you there's 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 few times where i feel like i meet someone who i consider like a kindred soul uh (laughs) like when i I, like when i met ben and what brought us together as best friends you know this man stood next to me while i got married Uh, i'm gonna stand right next to him when he does um there's there's a type of person out there that I think cultivates a mindset of freedom and artistic freedom and what it means to be to what I consider an artist. And I don't think you have to create art to be an artist. You can just be that experience. That mindset alone means you're bringing art into the world around you. I, I, I say to my, I say every day, my objective is to bring light to the world. I want the world to be a brighter place. And the only way you can do that is with freedom of thought, freedom of expression and you know, we say it on this podcast, you don't always succeed on your first time. You don't always succeed your second time. Your third time might still be hard, but sometimes the fourth time's the charm. Ba-da-da-da. Welcome to Fourth Time's the Charm, where niche is neat, episode 100. That's a breadstick and two bagels, baby, which also is coming right around the same time as our uh, two-year anniversary Hell as yeah. well just because the way weeks worked it's it's <laughs> also our two-year anniversary so yay! yay this is like a double triple quadruple celebration with the three of us i'm your producer ben alongside your director matt hello it's and me and and smoothing the sails for us today, we got the Shea Butter himself. It's Monte. Thank you for lubricating the sails of our journey, Monty. As Monty, always. what are, what what are you doing to celebrate our 100th episode this week, Monty? I just brew myself a really nice cup of Tim Hortons steep tea, and I'm enjoying. Wow. <laughs> well matt what well what are you doing this week that's so good well i i had a delicious steak dinner in celebration of episode 100 and i gotta watch uh one of my favorite horror movies of all time so i think i'm pretty i'm pretty kosher sitting pretty um i always decided to indulge a bit in the sci-fi horror arts and at your suggestion matt whoa over the last week, I saw the 2009 movie The Fourth Kind. Oh, directed oh, by nice. Olatude Asananami. Yeah, well, that's that's an approximation of his name. Yes, yeah, starring oh, Mila Jovovich. Olatunde Asu Sanami. 
I think that's further, but that's okay. I, I, I think uh, you say his last name is Awesome Tsunami. Yeah, so Awesome Tsunami directed this movie. Um, <laughs> it is a, butchering his name. <laughs> fame, fame director of the Star Trek TV series, Star Trek Short Treks. He also directed Smoking Aces 2. Wow. <laughs> that's actually sad. <laughs> so this was interesting. Uh, just to recap, everyone, I promised Matt that I would every week take one movie suggestion from him. Yes. And I would watch it. Uh, now, Matt. Yes. That's I, I liked last week's movie. Now, I need to ask you before I give my input on this week's film. Okay. How honest do you want me to be? Completely. I don't have a emotional lock into this movie enough to feel bad if you don't like it. Okay. Uh, so, this movie is about a it, it is a pseudo documentary yeah uh which stars a therapist who ends up being at the center of a paranormal investigation where herself and several patients are having a hard time as they're struggling to remember strange events that happen to them at mm. night, which are resulting in the disappearances of family members, erratic behavior, deaths, and brutal family murders. Oh. <clears throat> I mean, I'm sold. It sounds like a great movie. Yeah, it might. Uh, unfortunately, this movie, out of all of the movies you've suggested to me, Matt, and like, are you are you saying in your entire existence of me re uh, giving you movies to watch? Ever since you started recommending movies to me, man. Okay. There are, I would say, two movies that I would hold out as the films where I'm like, Matt and I just disagree. Oh no! One is John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. Great fucking movie. I like two. That movie. Yeah. See. You two. And, and I feel like this is going to be an even starker contrast Ooh. is 2009's The Fourth Kind. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I hate to start out episode 100 with a downer, but this was one of the dumbest, most <laughs> bullshit constructed movies I've seen in my life. And for the life of me, I do not know what you enjoyed about this, Matt. You know, I'm, you know, do you want, do you want, how else do you want me to be? brutally brutally honest matt uh i i watched this for the first time i think in about 2010 uh a friend forced me to watch it and i remember laughing at it because it was eventually referenced in one of my college classes when discussing whitley striber and how uncreative he was at writing and I and I and I so almost direct me on this. I almost directly quote my professor here when I say, "Despite Whitley Stryber making some great points, he's about as good as a writer as the people who wrote the Fourth Kind." Yeah, um, it's a really <laughs> bad movie. the The foundation oh. of it, it's foundationally flawed. So the whole, the whole conceit of the movie. I'm gonna try and be fast here. Yeah. yeah. The, the whole conceit of the movie is that. It is 
supposed to be a documentary in the vein of like the forensic files TV show Mm -hmm. where they mix real life footage with dramatic reenactments. Okay. One, the dramatic reenactments are not really anything approximate to the real life recordings they show. Secondly, the real life recordings are also fake. So none of it's real. And if none of the movie is, if, if the real quote unquote footage isn't real, then there's mm-hmm. no point to be doing the reenactments. Just make the whole movie a documentary style film nah, that seems regarding too hard. the happenings. I mean, I have not watched a movie so creatively bankrupt since Triangle of Sadness. Okay. Well, okay. Which, All right. Well, it, I, I, it's, I, it's foundationally stupid because I don't care about anything that's happening in the movie because we're barely introduced to any of the characters. Shit just <coughs> happens. The Everyone kind of acts like a caricature of themselves. The son hates his mother for some unstated reason. She turns into a psychopath. Um, the, the, the police are just unnaturally hostile. If you're going to have a pseudo documentary, people got to act a lot closer to people Mm -hmm. than fucking psychotic Hollywood characters. And they don't. So it's just watching a fake movie within a fake movie. So I like doubly don't care about any of it. Well, well, Ben, Ben, just to kind of like really just to saturate yourself in, in the perspective of the general public. I, I found the two the two most up most voted on reviews on IMDb for the film. And the the most the most uh, liked one is seven out of ten stars. If you're already on this page before seeing the movie, it's too late. Uh and, and they and they, they, they prime this this author, Stiginger, um, says that during the movie I looked at my girlfriend and our faces said, No way. But no, it couldn't be. Good God, and that the the use of real versus recreated footage gets to you. The sound and the real footage and recording will really get you. What do you What do you have to say to Stige integer? Stige in in integer can go fuck himself. <coughs> all right, all right. Well, um, okay. Well, l- l- let's look at let's look at what Gem Dev has to say, Ben. And I'll I'll read you. Just just the title of his review, because I think it'll really capture your feelings. Uh, one out of ten stars. Prepared to be lied to by a terrible film. Yeah. It's just... It's, it's just... What, what would make you think that putting a fake fictional film reenactment within... A faux, a faux real film. Mm-hmm. Like what? What makes you think people would get behind that? Because of the true story and the boom that came out ten years I ago. Mean, I mean, of... it's 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 an, kind of embarrassing. Well, you know what's not embarrassing, Ben? The movie what? you're gonna watch next week. Oh, now, great. now, in regards to the to the, uh, is this because I made you watch Championship Wrestling from Florida? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> I had to get I had to get one bad one in. 
Now, Ben, did you have you seen the film The Endless? Uh, hold on. Wait. <laughs> it's it's on Netflix. Hold on. Hold on. Wait. Wait for it. Wait. 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 No, I haven't. Sorry, I had to check the IMDb page to make sure it was good. Uh, hey, you, fuck I off. Have not, I've not seen this movie. Well, you, your recommendation for next week is a movie in a similar vein to some of the movies that we're going to be talking about in our next series. It is 2017 The Endless uh, from directing pair Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. Uh, this is another sci-fi film. As kids, they escaped a UFO death cult. Now two adult brothers seek answers after an old videotape surfaces and brings them back to where they began. Um, this is a very unique movie um, that I, I'm very interested to see what you think about it, Ben. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. You know what? That that my comment to that movie is that it felt like watching. Um, what's that movie that we watch? Um, shoot, the one about the cult. A lot, uh, Matt. The one with Forrest, Midsummer. Midsummer. It felt like a really shitty knockoff of, of Midsummer. Wait, That's which movie? Thank you for yeah, tempering my expectations, Monty. Wow, I love that movie. <laughs> well, eat, I will be the tiebreaker. Eat a dick, Monty. <laughs> next week. Uh, but hey, hey, it seems like we got a little too much shea butter, so let me take the butter really, knife we here. We don't have any shea butter. I'm fucking rough right now. The shea butter I'm, has I'm been pretty raw. melted. I can give you a different right. movie, Ben. That's actually that's, no, that's no, we're, critically we're going well reviewed. Wow. We're, we're going with the endless. I you know, endless I, I didn't choose the, the box office success film and chose the underground one, but apparently Matt, we're moving apparently on. Mont- wow, I'm no, I am fucking upset now. <laughs> we're that's the exact vibe we need to have in, in our uh, going into talking about one episode. of my favorite directors of all time and I'm already upset. <laughs> but first today i want us to reflect on 100 episodes of Whoa, four times the charm we did what? it what? now monty i know that you've joined us for the last what like 30 or so 35 ish uh yeah 30 what, there. What, what what have been <clears throat> uh some of your favorite times trials and tribulations as a part of the fourth times the charm entourage getting my nickname <laughs> that's a good one that's a good one the, that the is birth, a good one the birth of the shea butter is a great moment ben, ben what, what's been your favorite moment from these 100 episodes oh god uh probably your reaction every time we finish a wrestling episode and we stop recording and i go yeah how was that and you go that was good well i actually so i was gonna say i think my one of my favorite episodes is a callback to one of our very first episodes and it's actually reading the reviews on that creepy wrestling figure site where there was like only seven people on the forum and they were just sharing the same like comments with each other and we're like sexualizing the action figures sexualized fan fiction over a picture of 
two Harry Potter action figures. And they would talk about like how Emma Watson's action figure legs were really nice to look at. <laughs> it was deeply uncomfortable and substantially more interesting than the episode we recorded. But boy, do I love it. And actually, the actual real highlight. And if you're listening to this podcast for the first time or you've been listening to us for a short period of time, there's one episode above everything we've ever done that actually is important and i'm sure i'm sure ben knows this episode and i i sincerely hope monty you've listened to it. and if you haven't i implore you to go and listen to it and it's okay. it's our interview with hal masonberg mm, the for real. the hal masonberg yeah. interview out of the 100 episodes we recorded is in my opinion the greatest piece of journalism that ben and i have ever done I think our, our episodes uh, with the uh, producers and, and director of Lunch Ladies was a great opportunity to talk about the creation of things and the growth of, of media. Um, our interviews uh, with uh, the eradication of the unworthy infants is another big highlight for me getting to talk to a young, growing band that I'm a huge fan of. But more than anything than we've ever done, we gave an individual true catharsis gave him gave someone the opportunity to fully dive into something that he hadn't dove into to the degree that many other people have allowed him to in the past and i think in the moment we made a genuine friend so this this whole episode is is dedicated to the to the highlight of this podcast which is our interview with hal masonberg and his great film that was stolen from him the plague and uh this is yet another call out and a call to arms by everyone listening to this to reach out to sony screen gems and get them to release all of the footage to hal masonberg yeah that's right we need the writer director's cut released to the outside world we do we really it do. is a really it is still to this day a legitimately very good movie and i and I, we talked about it a bit and on, that's unfinished on, yeah, that's unfinished. And we and and despite Hal's opinions of the uh, studio version of the film, um, or the Clive Barker studio version, Ben and I still saw something really tremendous in that movie. A, a largely, I think, forgotten piece of horror science fiction that's out there, and it is genuinely an, a great movie that is turned into a tremendously great movie. Um, by seeing the true art of it the true vision um, and some of the well, best child acting we've ever seen put to film also true well of course the best part of it is being able to spend time with friends isn't that oh. right guys yeah. Oh. yeah i was gonna say i've made two good friends here yeah friends and that's the episode but, good night everybody no i'm kidding but oh oh actually before also, we move on also the first around the world in 50 questions <laughs> Yeah, so shout out before, to that. Before we go on, I wanted to show off Whoa. our top 10 listen to episodes. Oh, okay. We'll All have to right. revisit these All in right. the future. So, uh, and actually, there's a tie, so it's going to be 11. Wow, fucking lying to they the audience are, already. <laughs> so, uh, starting from uh, number 10 is a tie between. Okay. Kyle's episode of Around the World in 50 Questions. Of course it is. And the first episode of Around the World in 50 Questions. That's a travesty. 
<laughs> then uh, there is uh, episode 72, Matt, Monty, and Murder Movies, Oh My. Oh My, Triple M. Was that the first Triple M? I believe that I was, the first, that was the first Triple yeah, M. Yeah, hell yeah. Episode 5, The Writer's Room. Okay. Our very first wow. one. We haven't done one of those with Monty yet. We haven't. We should do that very soon. Yeah, a retired uh, theme to be returned. I, this isn't part of the top 10, but we received a lot of listens for our uh, repost of uh, Festival of Findings Ready to Rumble. Oh, yeah. Great. That's actually a great episode. I will, I will a great episode. shout that out. We did actually a great job on that one. Uh, after that is promo class Bray Wyatt second part. That's, that's probably my second favorite thing we've ever done. Then episode 31, Hal Masonberg interview. Yeah, that deserves to be at the top. That needs to be number one before the end of this year. Episode 44, down the rabbit hole, Harley Poe, Morrow and Ponce Nocturne. Three great bands. I was listening to Morrow today. Uh, episode 13, Promo Class, Bray Wyatt Part 1. Oh, wait, so so Part 1 did a lot better than Part 2. Yeah, well, not substantially. It's, okay. it's these, these guys are on the same ballpark. Oh, sorry, di- difference between five listeners and ten, my bad. <laughs> We're not there anymore. We yeah, actually have listenership here. Uh, our top three episodes. Okay. Episodes, really, they're the same here. Uh, episode 86. Ben shoots on winning Wheel of Fortune. Hey, hey shout out, <laughs> hey, shout out. That's good. Episode sixty-two, yeah. Cult of Personality, Shinchanji Church of Jesus. Hey, all you gotta one do more is listen. Piss, piss off a cult, and then you get a couple of listens. And then Matt, can you guess what our number one most listened to episode is? I, 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 the, the cynical part of me thinks it's going to be a Ben solo episode. That was just filler. Um, but the, 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 my heart and soul really hopes it was maybe our interview with eradication of the unworthy infants. No, oh, okay. it is episode six unsold dreams. Max Landis's hellbound. Hey, that's actually, yeah, I agree. That's a great episode as well. Um, if Max Landis, shout out to Max Landis. I hope he finishes the script for Hellbound. But he's about to put out um, one of his largest pieces of work since uh, Wrestling Isn't Wrestling, um, which is all, which is his uh, short film at adaptation of the uh, DC comic storyline he was going to sell um, and and produce after American Alien was super successful. You know, Matt, you're talking about Wrestling Isn't Wrestling. I think after. Our show today, I have an idea I'm getting a pitch for you. Uh, oh. Pitch to you. I, I think okay. you're going to like it. We'll, we'll uh, but hear meanwhile, about that. we're, we're going to go from talking about Ooh. one artistically minded person to another one. Now, because this... today is not oh. just wow. fourth times the charm. Oh, God. What are you about to today say? Today is also Ben, Matt, and Monty's. Festival of Findings. Hey! We're back. And so Festival of Findings, our objective is to dive into the filmography and films of important directors who we think brought something truly amazing to cinematography, into the film world. And in this week, we actually are going to be uh, talking about a movie that I found 
primarily because of doing the original Apocalypse trilogy, which in Ben and I's second podcast, first, what I don't remember which which era that was, and because I had a podcast before I knew before we had a podcast together. It was the one after that, and then I did the third podcast. Yes. Okay. So this would be our, our myself yeah. the second podcast in the Ben and Matt which, universe festival. Which, of Finding. by the way, which by the way, I a few of those wrestling interview episodes mm-hmm. are shockingly listened to by a lot of people. Yeah. Um, interviews. The we most. Got with the, well, one of them has Aubrey Edwards on it before she went to AEW. So now that's like a really strange interview from Dude, like re- six months before you anyone have to knew her. Re-release it on, on under did. the fourth time's the charm. Oh, okay. I have. Uh, and then also, <laughs> one of the most listened to episodes on our whole channel is an episode of when I had the wild world of wrestling doing kayfabe in character interviews. Oh, I love and that. That's guess, one of my favorite things of all time you've ever done. And and guess who was on that episode, Matt? Oh, um Velveteen Dream. Better some, Jimmy some... Jacked Cash. Oh shit, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's go. The fact that we never oh. any interviewed Stevie Fierce is a real travesty. Now there is there is another man um in the in the history of uh, of film and art who wanted to push the boundaries much like Ben and I did um who who sought his artistic expression in multiple formats just like Ben and I did and I I feel perfectly adequate comparing myself um to in my opinion one of the most unique filmmakers of the 20th century and especially of the 1990s and 1980s a man of both high highs and brutally low lows the greatest man to ever adapt hp lovecraft's work directly today we are going to be talking about Stuart gordon and his incredible debut film reanimator now, for those out there who don't know who Stuart Gordon is, um, Stuart Gordon, it was actually born in August 11th, 1947 in Chicago, Illinois. Clap, 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 clap. CM um, Punk. CM Punk. Well, and just like you, Ben, he eventually uh, took his life to Los Angeles where he died. Um <laughs> Now, why did you put it that way? What are you trying to say, man? Now, <laughs> no, <laughs> point taken, Matt. Come oh back to me. Um, now, now, Stuart Gordon is, I think, a fascinating director, well known for his horror films, his his goopy, over the top cinematography, and his dedication um, to adapting and creating works based on things that he felt really passionate about. Um, though most people probably know him for a film that his name isn't normally associated with, which is Honey, I Blew Up the Kids and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Now, he, he is actually the, those characters. Yeah, yeah he's the he created the characters and is one of the writers for Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and an executive producer for the 1992 uh, sequel Honey, I Blew Up the Kids. Now, long before he did those movies and by long, I mean four years earlier. Um, he directed Reanimator, but in order to get to Reanimator and understand 
why it looks the way it is and the history of it being made, we have to go back to what Gordon was doing prior to making films. And what Gordon was doing prior to making films was making theater. Now, Gordon Ryan, uh, not Gordon Ryan, he's a jiu-jitsu athlete. Stuart Gordon, um, at the time, was a bit of a provocateur. A, a, a man who wanted to really push the boundaries of, of theater and what it meant to be in the audience. He, he's just, he described his plays as an attempt to at- an attack on empathy. Um, one of his first major plays back in all the way back in 1968, uh, was a play that he produced called the game show. Now that sounds like a, a good time, right guys? Would you go see a play called the game show? Uh, it's uh, honestly, it's kind of a boring name. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Boring Does name. it have anything to do with that game show movie that we watched? No, What's the really? Google reviews on it? Uh, well, you know, it doesn't have very many Google reviews. How, and, and... how much are tickets? When well, is it? Well, it was made it really depends 19... on what my schedule is. Well, it was made in 1968, and it's in the theater, so you probably won't see it. Oh, um, I can't make it. Sorry. But well, I think I think you might be lucky because uh, when when Stuart Gordon put on the production, he actually locked all the theater doors and using plants in the crowd, uh, seemingly humiliated, beat, and raped multiple members of the audience. Now, thankfully, um, they were primarily plants. Um, but as primarily, the, primarily, but as, as the show would go on and almost every performance of it, the crowd would start completely, like an honestly rioting and forcing the show to stop. Um, oh uh, Stuart Gordon, uh, said the game show's game is you it is a completely dedicated to destroying the complacency of ever member in the audience to make you react. It wants you to get up and forcefully smash in the head and the body. It wants you to throw up, to scream out, and to lose trust in the people sitting next to you. I yeah, want it, something... I want you all by yourself to do something. Yeah, uh, I so I, I noticed while looking uh, at interviews with Stuart Gordon mm-hmm. that he's very much a uh, director's director. Yes. Oh, very much uh, so. And. And honestly, more so than many directors, because, you know, the standard Hollywood director looks at actors as objects, where Stuart Gordon seems to view the audience as an object completely also, uh, which is which is very much indicative of the mastery of his craft that he needs to have. Uh, Another one of his plays he did was a take on Peter Pan. Yes. Which. uh was according well, it, to him it got him and his future wife arrested for obscenity yes uh <laughs> what it was is it interpreted peter pan okay use the exact same dialogue except they replaced the lost boys with hippies <laughs> and they replaced pirates with the chicago police and they replaced Captain Hook with the mayor of Chicago at the time because he thought it was so stupid uh, that at the time there were hippie rioters at the Democratic National uh, Convention. Yep. And they sent police officers to beat him up. And so he was like, I thought that was really stupid. And so because it's kind of like an allegory, I just put those people in the Peter Pan universe and I played everything else straight. And they didn't like that. And the interviewer asked him, is is that really why they called it obscene? He's like, well, yeah, I, I think they more so objected to 
the part where everyone's having an orgy and they're projecting we're, we're like projecting video onto the people's naked bodies they probably had more of an issue with that yeah <laughs> just just a bit and and gordon actually went on from there to direct over 37 different plays um including the rap trilogy which later became a very famous uh comic book and one that you will see listed on imdb as his first film which was a lo- a tv filming of his play the Ble- uh, the bleacher bums now so so he he said that his theater work was inspired by uh jacobean tragedies mm-hmm. uh which are you know in the same ballpark of like a shakespearean theater yeah. tragedy they're very uh, traditional yeah. in their design i feel like it it sounds and it seems and i feel like it's maybe some convergent evolution here but really his theater is extremely indicative of the grand guignol uh theatre uh of france matt do you know anything about this you've completely lost me because you said things in french okay le théâtre du grand guignol uh whenever uh, ben breaks out the (coughs) you know he's really trying to be pretentious it's how it's pronounced okay ben Ben, you want to know what's really this is why the french spit on americans when they go overseas just just to give you a piece of advice I heard I heard a seventeen year old uh, today refer to how big of a fan they were of KFC murder chicks. <laughs> really? Yeah, legitimately. They saw them live and were talking about how cool of a show it was because the cops got called. Bro, see, influencing a new generation. Yeah, it started started with the podcast. Thank God for KFCMC. Um, I'm glad I can be part of the the sweeping change. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Grand Guignol uh, is french theater that's it's it's essentially pulpy b-movie horror before that existed oh on stage yeah so so kind of like how the penny dreadfuls were the predecessor to like the monster movies of like the of like the 40s exactly so like some example plays are un crime dans une maison de fou by andre delord which translates roughly to a crime in a house of crazies, okay, uh, two hags shit. in an insane asylum use scissors to blind a pretty young fellow inmate out of jealousy. I hope they actually or, stab someone in the eye on stage. Yeah. Right. Uh, or, uh, le baiser dans la nuit, uh, which I think is the kiss in the night, uh, by Maurice level, uh, level, a young woman visits the man whose face she horribly disfigured with acid and he obtains his revenge. So, like, nothing, like, there's no moral to the story. It's people doing horrible things to each other because they're horrible people. And so they would have, like, six or seven of these in a show, and they'd alternate between more horror and more comedy, uh, like a, you know, modern-day sketch show, uh, which a lot of his plays seem to... Uh, be very similar to in in terms of structure and purpose mm-hmm. uh, also one more shout out uh, matt do you know the film director who most directly inspired Stuart gordon why don't you tell me baby it was mr william castle oh hey who who directed a lot of the films 
that Stuart Gordon would uh, sneak out and watch in secrecy from his parents. Oh, that's when so he was cool. a child. Uh, that would give him horrific nightmares. Oh, uh, what? most no. notably House on Haunted Hill, Great 13 movie. Ghosts, and oh, one that awesome. Gordon himself refers to as giving him nightmares for years. 1959's The Tingler. Okay, we're watching The Tingler. <laughs> I haven't seen The Tingler, but uh, let me tell you, I'm going to get tingled. Um, All right, Matt, now take that, us away. That leads us to 1985. So Stuart Gordon is still currently living in the Chicagoland, Milwaukee area, making plays, making films. And he was sitting alone one night with a couple of friends talking about vampire movies. Um, and he felt like there was way too many of them, which we, we, we saw aggressively. And actually, in a very similar vein to Lovecraft, thought about wanting to make his own Frankenstein movie. Um, and thankfully, that evening, one of his friends had request uh, recommended that he read Herbert West Reanimator by H.P. Lovecraft. Now, just like Stuart Gordon went on to do, uh, Monty and I actually both reread um, Herbert West Reanimator. I had um, read it long ago before I had read all uh, the cl- the entire collective works of Lovecraft, um, and it was a it was a great a great fun to go back to it. Now, Monty, I wanted to cut to you here. Um, was this your first time uh, reading uh, uh, St- uh, Herbert West Reanimator? Yeah, it's my first time and before I watched the movie, actually. So, so you, yeah, you read it, it be before considered. you wa- finished watching the movie? I yeah no I I, I you and Ben watched finished the movie, the movie. first okay. like yes. long time ago. I watched the movie first and then uh, I asked you about it and you suggested that this is the collection you should get on Audible and then I I'm just started listening to it this weekend so yeah so is this is this your first time reading Lovecraft in general yes yeah I was, okay yeah so yeah. so I I wanted to dive into the original series a little bit to give a little bit more context behind um love uh gordon's inspiration here now um this story was originally published in 1921 um and was made up of six serials published between then and 1922 in june um and it was actually originally written pretty much out of like anger by lovecraft um he really wanted to write his own kind of adaptation of mary shelley's uh frankenstein um and struggled to come up with a way to do it and was desperate for money um and a magazine told him they'd pay him five dollars a book an episode basically so he wrote six of them um though despite the kind of flippant nature in which he wrote it this is actually the first uh instance in which we actually go to miskatonic university which for uh fans of lovecraft out there is one of the most important locations in Lovecraftian lore and as a very relevant location in the film we were going to watch. Um, now the, in, in the, in the books, um, we follow the care, uh, a character basically the same, um, as, uh, Bruce Abbott's character in the film, Dan, Dan Kane, who is a fellow scientist at Miskatonic university. Um, when suddenly a, an estranged genius inventor, uh, known as Herbert West arrives. Now in the books, the uh, character, unlike in the film, has a much more uh, loving fascination with Lovecraft. 
Um, and they, they work and live together for about the next 16 years as love, as uh, Herbert West dives into his experimentations in order to reanimate corpses. Now, in the books, we follow him and his different misadventures as you get to hear about six of the main events in, in their lives where they were very successful in their reanimations and the way Herbert West continued to drive himself deeper and deeper into the dark and twisting world of making um, corpses come back to life. Now, I will address, um, and it's pretty flagrantly on, uh, pretty fragrantly there in the fourth novel in the series, uh, "The Scream of the Dead," and to some degree in Six Shots by Moonlight." Um, they're very racist. I'm just mm-hmm. gonna be blunt about it. Uh, yeah, Lovecraft I was shocked is- about that. That was like. Wow. <laughs> Lovecraft, uh, as a writer in the 1920s, has some pretty uh, disgusting things he wrote. And there's in no capacity anyone on this podcast is going to support the uh, the racist things he wrote. The greatest thing about reading his work is that it's all in public domain. So anyone making audiobooks or produ- productions around it, none of that money goes to Lovecraft um, or anyone related to him. Because uh, we don't want to support racist people. But... The context behind uh, Lovecraft's hatred for the world and many people is a long and complex one. Um, I know, Monty, you uh, and I were talking about whether it was nature versus nurture, um, in a sense, for Lovecraft. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, Lovecraft had a very rough uh, life, despite being born into great privilege. Um, He suffered from, like, tremendous agoraphobia and many other social anxiety disorders. Um, there is a tremendous, tremendous um, deep dive into Lovecraft's life by uh, in Praise of Shadows, um, who comes to the conclusion that um, what might have been affecting Lovecraft his whole life was that he actually might have been transgender. Um, and what? given the time period huh. that he grew huh. up in, um, that was, was even more unacceptable than it is now. Um, Lovecraft was known to talk in a high pitched feminine voice when he was alone and with friends. Um, he would often dress in more feminine dress, uh, dresses and clothing when he could. Um, and as a small child, his, uh, mother basically raised him as a daughter, um, because oh. she, cause she wanted a daughter and never got one. And all she had was Philip. Um, and she, he was also pretty horribly abused, abused. And his grandmother and several other of his family members were deeply racist because at times in their life, they were losing their money and their privilege and were forced to move to different parts of the country where they were, in their minds, forced to live with other people. Um, And this led into both what created um, Lovecraft's insatiable ability to write horrifying tales that really pushed the boundaries of human and... uh, horror at the time creating its own entire subgenre of horror um but it's it's impossible to ignore his contributions to some very hateful ideas that exist in his stories but despite that i think uh what we see with Stuart gordon's reanimator um is what we've seen of the best of the adaptations of lovecraft's work now Lovecraft's work is, and and Herbert West Reimer is a great encapsulation of a very dry kind of dialogue. Would you, how would you describe the kind of vibe of the of the books, Monty? It's like very, um, 
very i i like it <laughs> i couldn't so, say it better myself monty very like the way i i just you didn't the, read it shut up Ben. <laughs> the way i see that story or what i heard was listening to it on audio mm-hmm. um i always this wondered, podcast brought to you by audible.com <laughs> i always wondered like if it, it has something to do with um the narrator his friend like is it something like from his mind like is he herbert west like he's a schizo like the way i'm, I'm trying to picture it. Oh, another I, interpretation i was no. i was getting in as like because herbert west's character is like so mysterious right i always mm-hmm. wondered if he was you know satan himself oh not at all Lovecraft's work doesn't get that deep, Monty. Yeah, well, uh, I, I what, don't know. That's just what, my interpretation of it, and it's what, very descriptive and everything. So it is. Yeah, it, it's very journalistic. His work is very academically written because it's meant to it capture something that feels real. Yes. Um, yeah. All of all of Lovecraft's narrators, um, outside of the novels in his dream sequence, our dream cycle, are meant to be like fully tactile, materialistic, real people. So the narrator um, is an actual student who just happened to meet a crazy scientist who had unlocked the secrets of the immortal world through his dabblings with the occult. And the wouldn't ca- that be crazy? Yeah. Yeah. If like, if like you're a student and all of a sudden your doctor's like, yeah, I can raise people from the dead. And he just casually does it on like, well, I don't know, like a it's Thursday even, afternoon. It's even scarier because Herbert West is another student. <laughs> Who's just like, hey, yeah, hey, bro, colleagues. do you want to, do you want to, do you want to, do you want to help me with a science experiment? And you're like, yeah. And then he raises a, a, a an animal from the dead with a magic potion, um, which you never know what's in it. Um, and the, the novel also serves as a criticism of modern academia, uh, which we actually see captured in, in the film. Um, so much like Monty and I, uh, Herbert West, I mean, Herbert West, um, uh, Stuart Gordon was, uh, was told to read the story by a friend. And unfortunately he, he, the only way he was able to get it was at the the Chicago public library. Shout out to the library. Um, now when he actually read the movie, he wanted to turn it into a stage play, which he later did, um, and wanted it to be a musical. Um, but his friends at the time were like, look, the, the only way you're going to get this thing made is by putting it on film. So the original script for reanimator was a 30 minute TV pilot, uh, which was later developed into a full 13 episode treatment for a long form version of the reanimator story, which I think, and we don't have those the scripts. were, and those episodes were an hour long age. Yes. And I, I believe those, those scripts were meant to, um really capture uh the entirety of the st- of the uh Herbert West story which in the novels covers about 16 years of time now um he working with special effects technician uh Bob Greenberg uh who worked on John Carpenter's Dark Star one of his very first movies um he told Gordon that the only way to get this thing made was as a, was as a movie and this was when um, Gordon went on to meet his close collaborator and friend, uh, Brian Uzan or Uzana, y- Uzana, Uzan. What Monty said, <laughs> um, and he actually convinced Gordon to move to Hollywood 
and get a um and get the movie made because he knew how much money it would cost. And luckily for Stuart Gordon, he ran into the man behind the production company Empire International Pictures, uh, which was a Charles Band company formed in 1983. And there's really only one reason this movie got made. There's really only one reason uh, From Beyond got made. And that's because of the little 1984 American horror comedy, Ghoulies. Now, Ghoulies made so much money. And I mean so much money. In 1985, it made over $1 million in its first weekend. And in that, and that, in that period of time, that's an incredibly large amount of money for a movie with less than a $200,000 budget. I remember when that movie came out, I was so afraid to go to the washroom. Hell yeah. <laughs> um, that's actually, that brings me so much joy to think about. Um, and you know, the movie made so much money that, that he decided to just dump money into getting movies made. And luckily for this uh, us and the history of cinematography, probably the greatest, one of the greatest, my favorite B horror movie of all time ended up getting mad, getting made, getting mad. Uh, one of my favorite B horror movies of all time ended up getting made, and that is Stuart Gordon's Reanimator. It is a a a take on a sort of shock sensibility of Evil Dead with the production value of something hopefully like The Howling, according to Gordon Ryan. It is a disgusting, exploitative, crazy movie um, that when originally released and made in 1985, uh, was released without the MPAA getting to watch it because he actually wanted to make the movie he wanted. And thankfully for us, we were able to actually watch that original un, uh, unrated version. Now yeah, there is because the because the rated version cuts out a third of the movie. Yeah, the the, the rated version is only ninety minutes and replaces a lot of the gore with a weird hypnotism scene. Um, there's also apparently like a two hour long version which includes the weird stuff they reshot to make the the uh, theatrical release make sense. Um, but if you're out there and you're gonna find this movie, you're gonna find the full goop, full gore full glory that is the movie uh in this movie uh we more closely follow herbert west um as we open with him killing or reviving his professor hans gruber no relation and he is a much more hands-on in your face perspective now i think what we see in the best of lovecraftian adaptations is not a direct adaptation lovecraft's work is supposed to horrify you with atmosphere and questions and the unknown uh what Stuart gordon does in all three of his reanimator movies is portray to you what that unknown chaos would look like if you were actually looking at it in person and letting you laugh at the absurdity it is because this movie above anything else is truly a a a comedy i i, I would not really call this a horror movie um, by no. many stretches of the imagination, you could maybe call it a B horror movie or just a B movie, but it's pretty straightforward. Just a gory, a hyper gory, a hyper over the top uh, comedy. That is my second favorite Stuart Gordon film. And one of the most fun times you'll have watching an HP Lovecraft adaptation. 
Ben, I want you to tell us what you thought of Stuart Gordon's reanimator. I, it's, it's weird. Okay. It's, it's weird in the same way that like Nickelodeon in the late nineties was, was really weird. You know, I guess it has that like Tom green vibe to it. Well, it's, it's basically a cartoon. Yeah, yeah, I, I I guess that's it. It it feels more or less like a cartoon. Um, but it's it's very well done. Um yeah, incredibly well yeah, done. Yeah. It's I, I mean the movie the movie the, the, I, I don't I, I have think... a hard time describing the movie because it's so matter of fact with itself, you know? Yeah. It, it's one of the things that makes the movie fun. It just doesn't question anything. Really? No, because it presents the actual insane world of love that Lovecraft created, but just in full tactile reality. And yeah, I, if if you're not told that it's a Lovecraft movie, mm-hmm. the only thing that gives you the feeling that it's Lovecraftian is that, and 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 this, as far as I'm aware, and you guys will correct me on this, but I'm pretty sure this is pretty far removed from where we were at with the original reanimator comics, which you've already alluded to, man. Yeah. Comic books. Thank but, you. um, the, the, the comic books, but, uh, um, not the comic books. They the, were, the they books. were short They're stories <laughs> published in, yeah, in, in yeah, horror the, magazines. Yeah. The, the comic books. I'm so, just, uh, taking um, back over. So like about a, when it comes to actually your point there, Ben, um, what love, what Gordon did for the script was pulled just the best bits from all four of the stories. Well, he ignores, three of them and mostly just pulls from the first two stories, which kind of sets up the relationship between Kane and, and West and then takes characters and instances from across the books. Um, so that the, the, the one thing I will say, the one thing I will say about the movie is that the girlfriend's father gets oh yes. fucked up. She is tormented in this Bar- movie. Robert and Crampton. I feel is one of the most game actresses so, in history. She is, but I feel so bad for her character. Her father no. is murdered, is sent more or less by her boyfriend. Well, actually, then, by by uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's original body double and stunt double. Really? Well, <laughs> yeah. there we go. The actor um, who, who who plays the first reanimated is Peter Kent. Who is uh who is notoriously famous for being the stunt tumble for Arnold Schwarzenegger? <laughs> nice. Well, uh, got to see well, his ass all on screen. So. Damn right. <laughs> yeah, it didn't help much here. Um, <laughs> yeah, so Robert but, Sampson, who plays Dean Halsey, which is the uh, uh Don Kane's love interest's father, who is uh Herbert West's like lackey in this movie. Um, yeah, so they, they, they're deeply in love. And when he falls under the, the wing well, of Herbert, we- well, they're in love, whatever they fuck. Uh, when well, he she's falls, in, she's in love with him. I don't he's, know if he's in love with her. He's in love with I Herbert. Like he's in love with Herbert West. He's in love with Herbert West. Yeah. And that's even, I, I, I think when, if, when, if, when, when she tell the scene where she tells him to get out after he's like, so I kind of killed your father. Mm-hmm. And and then she's brought back into it, and she's sort of Stockholm syndromed into like him being her hero. I feel so bad for she's her. She's just convinced she's... that Herbert West is evil, and that her her boyfriend had nothing to do with it. 
I, it's what she has to do, right? I, like I the amount of mental trauma she suffers well, in Reanimator. Right. So before we talk about the specific mental trauma of Barbara, of Barbara Crampton's character, Monty, what did you kind of overall think of the movie? I loved it. This is the first time I've seen it. I have okay. to say that it was really well done now that I've listened to the story. Like Stuart Gordon, whoever, all the writers that actually came up with this mm-hmm. idea and put a modern twist on it uh, was really well done. I really liked the, the, the Dean, is it Dean Kane's character? the Who's supposed oh, to be. No, uh, uh, Dean Halsey, played by Robert Sampson. Oh, okay. Dean. No, is it Dean? Wait, are you saying Don, Dan Kane, Herbert West's Dan friend? Dan Kane, Dan Kane, yeah, yes. the, Herbert Herbert West's friend. Like, I I just really love it. Like, because there's that struggle between like how they made his character like a very passionate person that wants to save lives and is mm-hmm. conflicted with you know the love of his life and the more you know morality of science and you know all that so i i really enjoyed it and watching it again after years i have to say that movie still stands up in my time i i I agree i think that's part of what what allowed it to become the grand cult classic that it is now yeah i I, we're we'll as we go as we move on into the next couple weeks of the podcast we're going to dive into the rest of student gordon's lovecraftian works um and we'll really be able to see which was his best in our opinions but But this is there's more (laughs) but but without without question without question this is his most loved and well received and i think it is because of performances like um i was looking like bruce abbott's but i i think the one the the performance that really is the reason this movie and his following movie from beyond are so successful is on the shoulders of one man one man's performance a man who can chew scenes and chew dialogue like a fat kid eating saltwater taffy this this man is the one the only jeffrey combs yes Jeff, jeffrey combs uh-huh. is without question one of the greatest con- contributions to um not only horror cinema but i think cinema in general uh a man famous for his roles in 1996 is the frighteners um from beyond star trek deep space nine where he was in 32 different episodes different um, characters I'm, too yeah different yeah, characters he's, too. yeah, yeah he's, he's all, all over of, like the he's all the token aliens he he know. he he's, now he now has the his mastery of his skill his craft it's just amazing. yeah well and, and you well, can more tell like his his willingness to sit in a makeup chair for hours at a time but yeah. yes but also as, as well also as we can see by his his modern career a man who really understands how to make a lot of money because he has been in 145 features slash TV shows um, since making this movie. And almost all of the things he makes now are animated features where he just does voice acting. And so he's truly, truly evolved into a truly special um, period in his career where he's turning out some movies that by all light and stars before me are some of the most terrifying looking features out there such as Bush Cassidy and the Wild Bunch and Onyx and the Furiotos and the Talisman of Souls, which looks like it was made using After Effects. Um, he also at some point played a character named 
uh, Philip Hatecraft in a Scooby Doo episode. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> he was in he was in the the famous film debut of uh, famous uh, adult actress Sasha Gray's um, debut in film Would You Rather, which is you know, actually not a bad movie. No, it's that's actually not her fun. debut. Was that, that was I that thought that was her like big breakout role into no, like major cinema. His uh, his her film was uh, that one with Elijah Woods, the one with the webcam. She's getting like abused and stuff. Uh, I, I I watched that on Pornhub, Monty. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> heck, what's Pornhub? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I feel like I'm the shea butter this week. Uh, so Matt, what else do you like about Reanimator? Yeah, so okay, so like back to Reanimator. Um, not only does Jeffrey Combs do an incredible job, but Stuart Gordon did a great job of taking some of the, as we said earlier, the biggest elements from um, the original Herbert West Reanimator series, uh, written by Lovecraft. Now we start with meeting um, Herbert West in Germany at at the death of one of the most famous neuroscientists in history, um, where we get to hear the real mindset of Herbert West, which is a man who is uncompromising in his search of science. Um, where he, it, when he, when accused of having killed this man, he goes, "I gave him life." Uh, in, in a truly captivating experience, which mirrors, um, Herbert West's line in the comics, which we hear later in the film, which is he's not fresh enough. Um, after this instance, we meet Dan Kane, who's a student at Miskatonic university, the notoriously secretive and occult university in, um, Rhode Island in, in the, in the, uh, fake town of, um, Arkham, uh, where, he becomes what? Arkham's what? not a fake town. It it's a fictitious. It was when the show came out. No. The movie, yeah, Arkham's no, not there, a real place. No, no, there's a big asylum there. Shut the fuck up. Where they have all these crazy people. Dude, the Joker's there. <laughs> okay. What? Wow. He's the Joker, <laughs> baby. Yeah, it's that, right next actually, to Gotham. It actually was named after the uh Lovecraft's work, uh, by the way, it's not just a reference. Um, so we meet, we meet our, our, our character there. And as the story goes on, they develop a quick and quite bond as we get a little bit of what I think Lovecraft was trying to capture with some of his early writings in the Herbert West series, where he really thinks boring academics who aren't willing to do crazy things are lame and stupid. Um, and in the in the in the comics or in the guys, see now you got me, Ben. In the uh, in, in the book <laughs> in, in the books, uh, Herbert West is this frail little blonde-haired, blue-eyed, mad scientist. Um, but thankfully for us, um, Jeffrey Combs plays him as an over-the-top, hyper-aggressive and um, exacerbated genius who even during a brain examination and autopsy in medical school is willing to break pencils loudly enough to disrupt <laughs> the, uh, the lecturing of our, I guess, technically our main villain, unless yes. you're going to consider um, uh, uh, Herbert West himself to be the main villain. I honestly, uh, I don't see him as a villain for some reason. I, I like, yeah, the, this this unlike in the in the books kind of portrays him as like an innocent doctor, right. but by the end of the movie, he's kind of like a 
an anti-hero, which is yeah. a real, real disturbing That's way for Lovecraft. Yeah. Um, but he meets Dr. Uh, Carl Hill. And um, Dr. Carl Hill is a very materialistic, straightforward um, neurosurgeon. And, and, and Gordon really kind of, I think, as you pointed out earlier, Ben, um, puts the lens up around what the difference between a person who just makes things for the audience like the uh, the doctor does and a person like Herbert West, who to me feels really like an embodiment of Gordon in the film as a true artist, a man who is uncompromising in his pursuit of what he wants to accomplish and thinks that the boundaries need to be pushed. Um, and, and I think one of my favorite B horror movie scenes of all time, where he's giving a brain examination, uh, Herbert Rust character breaks a pencil because he's frustrated. And then as soon as the uh, doctor continues to lecture, he pulls out another one and slowly <laughs> begins to break it just as a way to tempt this man um, because he feels like he's he's a falsehood. Um, we then get what truly establishes this movie for its B-movie glory after a, a, a dumping of exposition where you get to realize how desperate and goofy uh, Herbert West is, we get the cat scene. Mm. Now, now, Ben, what did what, what did you think about the cat scene in the movie? I think the cats are our friends. Okay. I think that cats are great, and I love cats. Wow. I, I appreciate your integrity. Monty... Please, please let me know that you have more thorough thoughts on the scene of two men fighting a zombified cat in a dark the in a dark uh, laboratory is more than Ben just liking cats. Uh, <laughs> no animals were harmed in this film. Uh, God fucking damn I have it. to say, I have to say it it, it, it was kind of the most comedic part of the film. Yes, yes it's, 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 it's like Evil Dead level. Even yes, two, yeah, two. even a two. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I I thought that was cool. The practical effects, definitely, and how he don't forget after they catch the cat and killed it, they brought it back to life again. <laughs> yes, they re-reanimated yeah. it. Oh my um, god! Yeah. You, you know what the vibe of the movie reminds me a lot of is okay. Return of the Living Dead. Actually. Yeah, yeah, and it, you know, I mean, I mean, they have the same thing. It, it the cat scene reminds me a lot of the the naked guy when they first bring back the zombies, and they're like, yeah. "There's just this fucking dude running around." In fact, in fact, I learned this: the gurney that they use to bring Herbert West in, okay, is the same gurney that was used to put the uh the half zombie puppet oh. on in return of the living dead. It's Holy the shit. Same thing. Look oh, at yeah. the connections. Um, after that, we get another call out to, uh, to the story where they Lovecraft. I mean, where West and Kane reanimate a random dead person who most recently died, um, uh, because of failed experimentations about them not being fresh enough. Yeah. Um, and when this happens, we actually see the death, of Mr. Halsey, the the father of D- of Kane's love interest. Um, now, with this death, uh, with Dean uh, Alan Halsey, this is actually a callback to a character from I think the fifth uh, uh, story in the original book, um, where and the character actually suffers the same fate, which is a nice direct callback to the text, 
where it was notorious um, in West's career that one of his victims actually got captured by the police and ends up in an insane <laughs> asylum. Yeah. Later, yes. later to Poor be... Poor guy. Yeah, later to be rescued by a headless but completely sentient zombie of a Canadian soldier Yes, um, that we actually get. And I think, despite the cat scene being the first moment where we truly get to kind of laugh with the movie... When we finally get to see um, Dr. Uh, Carl Hill having his head placed in a bucket and his body still walking around fully conscious, we get to see the true glory of this kind of B-movie. The true glory of, of Stuart Gordon knowing exactly how far to push the envelope of sleaze, how yeah, far that's... exactly to take things. And where his his provocateur past becomes very relevant because yeah this movie the, is the very goopy. Head is is really when the movie comes together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's when you really know that the movie is willing to be as insane as it needs to be, and I think it's part of why the movie sits in such infamy to this day. I, um, I think it's I, I think a lot of it is because it's one of the movies where you go, and and I think this is a hallmark of the best movies. Or when you go, wow, wouldn't it be cool if this happened? Yes. And then it does. Like, yeah. that's that's the joy and the of reanimator. And the effects look incredible. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they built six different prosthetic makeups just to handle all of the different positions um, uh, Robert Sampson's head is in throughout these scenes um, in order to make it look somewhat good. And they really really pull off the practical effects especially when i i love the fact that when he's holding the body up there's a scene where you can see the chest of his body um and the head being held and his body is about four times the size as it used to be (laughs) um and this scene was made especially famous in the film magnolia uh where two characters go haven't you seen the movie where that dead guy's head goes down on a woman? Um, and boy, does he in this movie. But before, and this shows the true comedic and, and writing talents of Stuart Gordon, right before you're about to get the worst of it, right before the movie's about to push itself over the line into just like, oh, now I'm uncomfortable which is what made some of the B movies of the seventies and the eighties that much worse. The, true exploitation films where watching it you just kind of feel bad and embarrassed for the actors and the people in it because of this like horrific rape scenes and just brutal unnecessary violence that doesn't even look like anyone's having a good time barbara crampton knows the exact movie she's in and she's she's one of those actresses that most sincerely seemed like you know, like she's she, not that she wanted what happened in the movie to happen, but she signed up for it. She, she knew was, she was and like, she when... was so fucking game that it yeah. makes the scene not uncomfortable, which I think is what makes this such a successful B movie. Any yeah, other director was, would have know, taken this exact scene and it would have been so deeply discomforting to watch. Like, she, she's, I, I, when she's... we watch that, that, that scene, that part, right? I did mm-hmm. have to say it was very cringy, but when later on when I did some more research on that film and uh, how Barbara Crampton came out and she says she doesn't regret it. She mm-hmm. says she would do it again if it's 
for the arts. And I yes. have to say that was very bold and, and badass way of her, uh, you know, taking Yeah, that. and they originally and, was a and, different and, actress attached to the role, and she she ran from the movie yeah. after reading yeah, the in script. In the interview that uh, I saw, she said that there's probably no one who's going to ask her to show off her elderly woman unmentionables on camera, but if she were asked and paid for it, she would willingly do it. If it makes sense for the film, yeah. Oh, uh, she didn't say that in this interview. She was just oh, like, "Yeah, I, I pay that me, part. yeah, sure." Yeah, she would do it if it if it if it helps carry the story and make it more realistic. So, and it, Anyways, in this movie, unlike the majority of the like. B movies of the time, it really does. Yeah. I mean, we're we're you know when when you look at the worst in like exploitation and crazy cinema at the time, most of the like the sexual violence or sexuality and gore serves no purpose narratively or story wise. In this movie, it truly, truly does, yeah. um, and it's all the better for that. And I and I think it is only. It is very similar to um, from be uh, not from beyond well from beyond for sure same director but from Prince of Darkness where some of the more uh, outlandish moments of that movie especially in its dialogue um, really do feel like they kind of serve the purpose of the overall narrative which is what makes that movie so incredibly powerful in John Carpenter's filmography um, but I think this movie well beyond that one. Despite that movie capturing the terror and the 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 actual horror of H.P. Lovecraft's work, this one captures the true depths of the insanity of what Lovecraft really kind of presents as being possible in his world. Um, and it's it's because of that fact that if you were to experience these things in real life, they would be so ridiculous that if any of this actually happened to you, much like in Lovecraft stories, you would just go instantly insane. Yeah. No one would ever believe you. No one would ever think what you did or what happened to you was real. They would only ever think that what happened was from pure madness. Let, and, let me ask you something, Matt. Yeah. About that. Do you think that Lovecraftian style films are potentially held back? by the Lovecraftian name from going even weirder and stranger? Or do you think that it's so hard to even get a good one of these movies that we should just take what we can get? I, I, I think it's more the latter. It's incredibly difficult. I think for filmmakers and creators to truly capture what makes Lovecraft's work. So uneffable because it is inherently things that are beyond reality. And if you're, and you have to be willing to push the envelope to such a degree and to go so hard into making something that's truly insane that each time horror and the world of, of fantasy and what we can do in films advances, it gets harder and harder to truly directly capture it. Now, I think what we're seeing nowadays is that Lovecraft's influence has become much less of a direct influence and much more a part of horror in general. I think we're seeing now in a lot of modern horror and science fiction, like a kind of ever present Lovecraftianness, um, where it's just kind of become part of the world of horror now to kind of like let things that seem crazy and unrealistic um, just happen because now we can pull them off with, you know, 
um, like special in the fourth effects. Kind. No, that's a terrible example. <laughs> a great example would be one of the modern adaptations of Lovecraft's work, which is The Color Out of Space, which is a movie that, when you read the text, seems unadaptable. And I think what is required of Lovecraftian filmmakers, which again makes it so hard to do, is that because of Lovecraft's work and because of the way Lovecraft wrote, the only way to make his work enjoyable on film is to like really expand on what's there or take the tone and make it something different. You know, Lovecraft never intended reanimator to be over the top comedy or to be so ridiculous that you giggle at the craziness of what's going on. Um, But if you were to, if you were to try to make a serious reanimator movie, like may, may all of the, may all of the elder gods in the world help you because I don't know how you'd pull it off. And not just basically be making Frankenstein. Um, and Have I you think... guys watched the Lovecraft uh, Country? Yes, yeah, that's a yeah, great like... recontextualization. And I think in the future with this podcast, um, I really want to make an effort in highlighting, especially those of like minority at, uh, creators who have taken the influence of Lovecraft and have recontextualized right. it into our modern world. Um, Lovecraft County is a great example of taking the horror and and depths of depravity that are presented by the horrors in Lovecraft's work and using and using that as a way to talk about race and racism in the Amer- in America. Okay. Um, and so, there are ma- many other authors who have taken cosmic horror as a setting and created genuinely wonderful films and and books with it. So in in closing, Matt Yes. This is the start of a look at Stuart Gordon's legacy through film. And, and, what, and, and, and how how do you contextualize Reanimator in terms of Stuart Gordon's legacy and what we should look for him in his future films? I, I and think, what we might not see moving forward. I think I think what we see here is and most importantly is the start of one of the most important and often forgotten filmmakers in cult and B horror filmmaking. Um, we see a, a, an individual who was able to really capture the provocative nature of live cinema and to attack the apathy of filmmakers. Uh, and I think he sets the tone for what became a grand influence across cinema. Now, what we're going to look at toward the future and the rest of his career is as Gordon ages and becomes potentially more cynical or his worldview and his directing abilities change, we see how he's able to adapt to the modern world and his adaptations of even another Lovecraft film that came out directly after this, um, which I think is where we see what happens when an artist goes from making something truly original and special to making something perfect. And finally, uh, down the line, we will close with his his most recent Lovecraftian adaptation after a long stint away from it, um, where in the 2000s, he comes back, much like with John Carpenter and In the Mouth of Madness, and creates arguably one of his last great movies, Dagon. But that is a tale for another time. <laughs> well, looking forward, Matt, Monty, it's been amazing these 100 episodes with one or the both of you. Thank you guys for joining me on this journey. I know I have had a blast as well from the festival of findings 
all the way to here. It's been quite an experience, and we are going to keep the celebration rolling to next week. Hmm. Special episode 101. I've been keeping everyone in the dark, but Matt, I think you have a very good idea of what we're going to be talking about. What is it, bud? I think we're going to be talking about and returning to one of our most prolific episodes. It's sure the life is. and the times of one of the most ineffable and legendary characters in modern pro wrestling. The new Undertaker. Be. The new the new um Wait, what? Wow. The new the newest Undertaker. I mean, I, I failed to reference other horror-based wrestling characters <laughs> there, and it really, really shot me in the dick. Um the man, the man who's set up to be one of the most creative and interesting characters in wrestling history, the fiend Bray mm. the Lizard Wyatt. Uh, I'm so sorry, Matt. No! <laughs> if I if I don't get to talk about reptilians in the next episode, I read so much about reptilians. I have a list. Of all of the references to different lizard-like people and different reptilian humanoids across fiction and science fiction and folklore. Do not take this from me. The Gorgons from the from the Greek mythology are one of the most original introductions, and they were an influential race that changed people. The Lymeria, one of the most the child devouring female demons of Greek mythology. Matt, Come on, Ben. Matt, I Okay. Deep the breaths. Shenlong, a Chinese dragon thunder god, depicted Deep as a breaths. human head Matt, on a Matt, dragon's Matt, body. Matt, we're going long already. Okay. The, Sobek, the ancient Egyptian crocodile headed god. Apparently, Matt, you don't listen to the podcast. <laughs> Not often. Because <laughs> I made a vow. I made a vow on episode two. Of the podcast. Wait, like the original episode two? That when we made it to episode 101, I was going to redo. I was going to improve upon. I was going to expunge the past. Oh, no. Of the most... The most what just broke? What just broke? (laughs) Fence falling apart here. Just dropped. (laughs) Of the most boring, terrible, don't do awful episode of Fourth Times the Charm we ever had. Next week, we return and create a sequel to episode one. A fourth time's the charm. Don't do this. Next week, five-figure discount returns. (laughs) And even if we didn't get it right the first time. God, we're not going to get it right the second time. We'll get it right the second. It's not going to (laughs) happen. Well, if it doesn't, Matt, we'll just have to wait another hundred episodes. Really? And then another hundred after that. No! Because I guarantee you, the fourth time's the charm. Good night and good morning! Oh, forever with the underground, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) 
fuck. I'm just reading comments between these people. I'm doing my episode. I'm hijacking this. Monty, send us say, say, say your line. For the fourth 100th time, talk to y'all later. <laughs> the, only, the only one who's actually been here for 100 episodes. Wait, no, none of us actually have. On, the, on your behalf. <laughs> well, until until a hundred more and a hundred in between. This has been four types of charm. Good night, everybody. Good night. Goodbye. Wow. <laughs> <laughs>